You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to today's Transformative Podcast. My name is Irana Remestvensky. I am the Managing Director of the Research Center for the History of Transformations. And my guest today is Professor Valeria Koroblova, a sociologist and philosopher by training, formerly Professor of Philosophy at the Shevchenko National University in Kiev, and currently a guest professor at the Charles University in Prague. Welcome, Valeria. Thank you for having me here. Valeria, you write a lot about the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. I know there are different theories about whether it was a real revolution or an uprising. In your writing, you talk a lot about institutions and about citizens or the idea, the understanding of citizenship in Ukraine. Maybe you could tell me something about the state of Ukrainian institutions before the Maidan, so up until the end of 2013. Indeed, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to consider post-1991 developments in Ukraine in terms of the scope of real citizenship. Because like in a nutshell, the citizenship implies having rights guaranteed by the state. However, at times there is quite a significant gap between those declared and sort of guaranteed by the constitution and those exercised and enjoined in real life by uh, the citizens of a specific state. And that's a specific issue for Ukraine because it, it seems to be that at least in 1990s it was citizenship on paper only because most of political and economic and social rights were in fact not guaranteed by the state. All these falls in line with the concept of Potemkin democracy or facade, fragile democracy, when people are on their own and the state institutions do not tend to their interests and rights. So we can call it a specific regime of citizenship of disempowered citizens and occasional voters, when periodic participation in elections do not bring about desired changes and therefore having a vote does not imply having a voice in the public domain. So that was the setting that roughly describes the, the political makeup before the Maidan uprising. And what about the state of institutions? How would you describe the Ukrainian institutions before 2013-14? Right. Simplifying a bit, I would say that roughly they fall into two main categories. One of them would be the remnants of the Soviet institution because there was a significant degree of institutional inertia. In early 1990s, there was a lot of frustration also among the power holders as what to do because many institutions were not operating properly. And it turned out that the democratic institutions are not to be implemented and put in work that easily. Those remnants of institutions, they were the only operative institutional islands, so to speak, and also Soviet practices dating back to Soviet times. And then eventually they got transformed in what came to be known the patronal politics or shadow institution, or at times people call it the deep state institutions, right? So basically some shadow practices that are not properly legally codified, but quite functional in serving the interactions between the elites, mostly interested in state capture and wealth redistribution from privatizing state assets and benefiting from that, let's say so. And the second category would be these newly emerged democratic institutions by the Western template, 
that were in a way showcasing the political transformations that the order shifted from the Soviet one to the newly democratic one, but they were largely hollowed out and did not perform their functions properly or performed only to a limited extent. How would you say the Maidan changed Ukrainian citizens and their idea of citizenship? What new dynamics did you see there? In certain political settings and contexts, when rights are not guaranteed and people are not really full-fledged citizens, they cannot just exercise appealing to some norms and institutions, exercise the full extent of their rights, but instead they have to contest and to claim their rights in a specific way. And in those settings, exactly such actions like mass protests would be manifestations of this contesting citizenship when people go out and start acting as if they are full-fledged citizens. They're trying to sort of to put these declared rights in actions. So like voting from Isin, acting as being citizens, people become citizens. Maybe to better understand this concept of performative citizenship, we could talk about some examples there. For me, coming originally from Ukraine, as you do, the example that comes to my mind immediately is this mob gathering outside and following a member of the parliament who is deemed corrupt or power hungry or maybe directly serving foreign or let's say Russian interests and either splashing this green dye, the so-called Zilonka, into his face or putting this person into the nearest dumpster. What are the examples, can we name, of citizens performing their citizenship? <laughs> it's funny that that's the first thing that came to your mind. I had in mind something quite different because these acts of revenge are more illegal but morally justified acts to channelize negative emotions. Of course, the vagueness of this concept is that it is hard to pinpoint it and to say, okay, he is now performing his citizenship, right, in this exact context. There are different types of actions under this theoretical umbrella of the performative citizenship. In the first place would be acts of disobedience. For instance, if you think about January 19th of 2014, when the laws were passed that people were prohibited to gather en masse in public places and also to wear helmets and to rally several cars in one chain and so on and so forth. So all these norms that basically outlawed the patterns of behavior that people were sticking to during the previous weeks what people did, they actually, again, en masse took to the streets wearing some items vaguely remaining helmets because they did not have like actual real helmets. And that was a very symbolic act of disobedience. So we do not just obey to the state regulations, but we behave in a way that we exercise our citizenship. Type number two would be acts of solidarity. When people were beaten, they were wounded and they were scared to go to hospitals because they could be arrested there. Then doctors were just gathering in some places trying to give them needed medical treatment with no fee. Or like lawyers going to police stations trying to defend those who were captured by the police and trying to defend them again pro bono. So they have some like really very minor but very cute and exemplary stories, for instance, about an old lady who came to this spot in the Mikhailovska church uh, where they were piling up resources needed for people living in the camp on the central square. And she brought some food, like literally a piece of sausage, several apples, a piece of bread, saying, that's all what I have at home, but I brought it here to feed the guys who were beaten, you know. 
You do not think primarily about your well-being or aggrandizing your own resources or keeping yourself safe, but you go out of your comfort zone to express your solidarity with the common cause. When I'm coming out and when I'm bringing some resources, what belongs to me, be that like material resources or my professional skills, but I'm putting it on the table to contribute to the common good, by the same token, I'm declaring we're all together in that. We believe in the common cause, we share the same values or the same visions, and we are contributing to this project. So that would be another example. Would you say that the state powers, maybe the politicians, also do those performative actions, or is it something that only citizens can do? The main difference here is whether something is being played out, which is in a way pre-scripted, but it does not generate anything new. It just shares and demonstrates something which is already pre-existing. Primary importance for me is the other type, when something new is generated in the process of performing, which is not pre-existing here. And of course, politicians do that as well. And like jumping from Maidan to more recent developments in Ukraine, I would talk about Volodymyr Zelensky, a very interesting public act when he declared that he would be running for presidency. Those who closely observe Ukrainian developments might remember that it happened on New Year's Eve, just like 10 minutes before the New Year. He addressed the audience on the main TV channel One Plus One, uh, congratulating with the coming New Year and also making this public announcement that he is from now on an official candidate running for presidency. What is interesting here is that actually this time slot in Ukrainian practice is always reserved for presidents. It is the privilege of the incumbent to address the Ukrainian people just 10 minutes before the midnight on the New Year's Eve giving a speech about the achievements and about the prospect and so on and so forth. So what's the trick here? I'm taking the presidential slot. I'm speaking as if I am already a president. And therefore, the message is bigger than the words packed in this message. It is also performatively validates this ambition for presidency. Well, Zelensky demonstrated an ability to perform long before he became president, right? I mean, those who live in Ukraine, they know about this TV series called The Servant of the People that started long before Zelensky became president, where he as an actor back then, plays a simple person who becomes a Ukrainian president. So that, for example, is also a great example of trying to win over the wider audience in Ukraine. And if I understand this concept that you're talking about correctly, then performative citizenship is pretty much always about audience and trying to reach a wider audience. What kind of role does the audience play in all of that? In a nutshell, it seems that the actor is the only sort of person who does something but in fact, it's only the recognition of his actions. The audience proves his agency. It engages in these sort of co-constitutive relations with the actor, and that's how the whole political spectator unfolds. You have mentioned that the institutions have not changed that much after the Maidan revolution, that they're still corrupt, that the, still the same people are rotating in the leadership positions. Has everything been so bad? Have there been any positive developments? Or how would you describe the changes in the Ukrainian citizenship and the idea of citizenship after the Maidan? It seems that nothing changes at large, but everything is changing, you know, day by day. So that's basically the reality of the Ukrainian life. 
It has been changing on many levels, but the most significant changes are in people's mindsets, in the growing social demand for different types of political relations, and in a way in making the existing institutions more efficient. It's not a top secret that the main leverage here would be the external conditionality. So here the interest of Ukrainian citizenry is supported by the conditions put forward by the Western donors who tie all sorts of help, investments in, in the Ukrainian economy and other kinds of support to reforms. Of course, many reforms were implemented and they are well known about public procurement, about the police reform, an attempt of a medical reform and so on and so forth. So. The existing institutions are being reformed, but there is no consensus that these transformations are irreversible and that they are sufficient. I think that the main roadblock here is the absent court reform. The legal system, the system of justice is indeed a deal breaker here, which is yet to be reformed. Having said all this, However, I should say that going back to the idea of citizenry, since I'm trying to balance this institutionalist approach with the focus of the agency of the people, I would say that the Maidan uprising itself generated this new phenomenon of an empowered citizen. Or maybe it did not generate it, but it expanded in its social base. So far more people started sticking to this idea, not just expecting the state to transform itself, but doing something. When people on different levels are trying to tackle even minor problems and by doing so make a difference, right? And that's, that's the trend, I would say. Not an institutional change, but at least a positive trend in postmodern developments in Ukraine. Wonderful. We'll finish on this positive note. Thank you so much, Valeria, for taking the time and talking to me today. Thank you for this interesting conversation. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by RedZet in Vienna.